Have a great morning. Was anyone else scared for just a moment that there was going to be some kind of like <laughs> mutiny? A little bit. It was like right on that like, this is fun. Is it fun anymore? Is this, oh. <laughs> Got to bring the plane in for a smooth landing. <laughs> That's right. Just stay calm. Pray silently in your head. Lord, deliver me. Help me. We're going to continue our series through Ephesians. We're looking at a passage that we've been kind of steeping in for a few weeks because there's a lot to unpack here, to understand, to think through the implications of individually and as a church. I'm going to read Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 16, and then we'll move through it. And this is Paul speaking to the Ephesians church, uh, church in Ephesus, uh, specifically around spiritual gifts and how God has gifted in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts to his church, and for what purpose? Starting in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And so, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Okay, so here's a really short review of kind of part one, which was last week. Key verse, verse seven, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Paul doesn't say to the church, God gave some people some gifts to use. The word grace here is not referring to saving grace when we put our faith in God, but it means to be graced with a responsibility and ministry. Each one of us, every single Christian has been given at least one spiritual gift that they are to use for the purpose of, verse 12, to equip each other for works of service so that the body of Christ, the church, may be built up so that we reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God so that we become mature, attaining or taking hold of the full measure of, so the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That with every year that passes by, with every decade, the church is built up and strengthened and encouraged, and both from within the church and from the outside, people would be able to testify, no one in this church is perfect, but there is an undeniable, deep and holistic progression that I see within the people of this church that they are becoming more and more Christ-like, and not just in a particular dimension, 
but they are learning to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves. They are learning what it means to respond to Jesus as Savior, but also to obey and respond to him as Lord in every area. So biblically, it's a real priority for Christians to identify your spiritual gift and then to start using it. Paul here and in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12 doesn't talk about the gifts as if they're, uh, they're this is kind of option. If you have extra time amidst your Christian life, you can kind of get to this stuff. He puts it right up front and says, if the Holy Spirit has gifted you to serve the community of Christians that God has placed you in for this season, then you need to do it. You need to find out what that gift is and start using it. What are the gifts? Well, the explicit gift lists are in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. Then there's some of the miscellaneous passages I talked about last week that their broader context are, are um, invoking the language of charisma or gifts. And so depending on your church tradition, you might lean into saying, well, they're not explicitly gifts, and other people might say yes. And then there's a whole discussion of whether all of these gifts are even exhaustive or whether they're just examples. The question that I want to look at today is amongst these gifts that are listed, and when the, Holy, or when the Scripture talks about how the Holy Spirit gifts people within the church, a really important question is, which gifts, which spiritual gifts are still active and still kind of available to us today? Because every Christian will say that the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to the church, but within Christianity, there's a pretty big parting of the ways in terms of whether all of the gifts are still, um, on, are still available to the modern-day church and to modern Christians, or whether only some are. And again, I alluded to last week, how you answer that question, what your hermeneutical or interpretational fault line is, will take you in two very different directions, right? You can imagine if you believed that God specifically gifts people in a, with um, what can, we might say more of a direct line to God to hear from God in a consistent way that we might call prophetic. They can hear God not in like an impression or kind of a soft like, oh, I you know, heard God speaking in my heart, but really heard, or that someone can work miracles or that someone's gifted with the ability to work healings consistently because they have a gift you would structure the life of your church and ministry very differently than if you don't believe those gifts are still available. So this isn't just sort of an interesting theological debate that has no real-world ramifications. Understanding which gifts are still active and available to Christians today is going to set you ultimately on two very different paths, expectations for your own Christian life, expectations for what ministry is supposed to look like, expectations for what a spirit-filled, uh, passionate pursuit of Jesus is supposed to look like, those, those veer in two very different directions. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to give you the best arguments for both sides of that discussion, transition to where I stand, and then talk about some of the implications, and specifically the dangers for churches that lean in one direction and churches that lean in the other direction because there are some pretty significant fault lines that emerge uh, when we um, don't understand our position and live into it faithfully. Okay, so a few 
preliminary qualifiers. This needs to be said because sometimes we jump right into a discussion of the gifts and which are the gifts for today, and we're, we, we're holding some false dichotomies, false choices um, in our heads right at the start of the discussion. So four things need to be said. First of all, this isn't a discussion concerning which side believes in the Holy Spirit. Both positions believe in the Holy Spirit. Both positions value and worship the Spirit as part of the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And both sides seek to respond to the Spirit's leading and guidance. So it isn't about which side is actually like pro-Holy Spirit or anti-Holy Spirit. That's, that's a false dichotomy. We've got to just shut it down right away. Second thing, this isn't a discussion about whether someone believes in the empowering presence of the Spirit or not. Well, maybe this side believes in the Holy Spirit like as a, like I'm sure the Holy Spirit exists, but I don't believe that the Spirit actually empowers Christians to ministry. That's, that's a false dichotomy. Both sides believe that the Spirit is given to Christians to empower them into the kind of life that you couldn't live in your own flesh, in your own broken humanity. The question is, what does the Spirit empower us for, and how does the Spirit empower us? That's the question. That, that's kind of the fault line. But the question isn't whether or not I believe in the Holy Spirit or whether or not I believe the Holy Spirit is actively involved in my life. Thirdly, this isn't an, um, a discussion or an argument or a debate about whether or not the Holy Spirit gives gifts, spiritual gifts to Christians. Both sides believe that the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to every, at least one to every single Christian to be used within the church. The issue in 99% of the discussion is whether or not the gifts that act as, for short form, the signs and wonders gifts, we might say that the, more, that the ones that seem to be more spectacularly supernatural, gift of healings or being able to speak in tongues or interpret tongues or prophecy, gift of miracles, whether or not those gifts are still available and active or whether or not they, because they served a certain function and now they no longer do, so they're not being given anymore, but the Holy Spirit still gives gifts of hospitality, gifts of helps, gifts of teaching. So it's not a discussion about whether or not the Holy Spirit gives gifts. It's which ones, is it all or only some? And this is not an argument, and this is maybe one of the biggest false dichotomies in this discussion. This is not an argument about whether or not God still does miraculous, powerful, supernatural things. This is not an argument that where one side, say, one side says, nothing supernatural or powerful or miraculous, there's no more healings anymore, and the other side is kind of yes to all those things. Both sides believe that God is still in the business of being who God is, so God continues to heal, God continues to do miraculous things, God continues to give people uh, visions who maybe don't have access to Scripture or different things like that. What is being discussed is whether or not there are certain people who are given a gift like healing that can exercise it with a fair degree of consistency, just like someone with a gift of teaching or with a gift of hospitality can exercise that gift consistently because there's some level, they, they have some level of control or participatory a synergy with the Holy Spirit in it. So it's not a discussion of does one side believe that God can do miracles or not? It's do we believe that there are specific Christians who can reliably and consistently use a gift 
of tongues, healing, um, prophecy. So, hopefully that does a little bit of the groundwork to say we're not discussing as a caricature one side that's very uh, pro-Holy Spirit, pro-God moving in power, and the other side that is anti-Holy Spirit, anti-God moving in power, just kind of dry, lifeless Christianity. That, that's not the way we start this debate. So let's look at the first position. Now, the first position technically is called cessationism, but I hate that term because it obviously is rooted in the word ceasing, which can feed into the idea that, oh, well, I guess maybe the Holy Spirit has ceased to work or God has ceased to do supernatural things. I just don't like that word because it's so negative in its connotation. So I'm just going to call it position number one. And this is the position that says some of the gifts are still active and available through the Holy Spirit, but the sign gifts, those more spectacular um, supernatural gifts that we see being used fairly consistently in the New Testament, they are no longer given to specific people to use as a normative practice to build the church today. So some of the gifts are still active and given by the Holy Spirit, but not all of them. So this position argues that the spiritual gifts of signs and wonders ceased when the apostles died as kind of a normative strategy for the church. Again, this position does not deny miracles, does not deny that God um, doesn't perform uh, healings, but it does say we shouldn't expect to be given any of these signs and wonders gifts and we shouldn't seek them out because they were designed as gifts to affirm the validity of the apostles and prophets in the New Testament who were given special teaching and leadership authority before the New Testament scriptures were fully compiled and could be used as the authoritative word of God. In that transition between the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures being written, there had to be an intermediary voice who could say to churches, this is the way to go, walk in it. And that was part of the function of the apostles and the prophets. Best arguments. Number one, I'm going to go through these fairly quickly, but I encourage you to read all the scriptures related to this. Best argument for this view, number one, in the book of Acts, Luke, who wrote Acts, the Gospel of Luke, part one, Acts, part two, Luke seems to emphasize and connect very clearly that the signs and wonders that were done in the book of Acts were most of the time done by apostles as a way to validate the fact that they genuinely spoke for the living and resurrected Jesus. Remember, apostles in the New Testament are people who saw the resurrected Jesus in the flesh and were commissioned by him to be a leader within the early church with special authority to teach and to set out the boundary markers for what does this new covenant faith call us to. Acts 2.43, everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. Acts 14.13, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Again, being connected to the apostles. Acts 15.12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. Paul, referencing his own ministry to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 12 says, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. He's saying, I was with you and I showed you by my life the fact that I, was, I wasn't a faker. I wasn't trying to pull the rug over your eyes. I was a real apostle sent by the living Jesus. And he says, I did this through the use of signs, wonders, and miracles. 
So he says, these things that were done through me validate my message, but it's all about the message. It's not just about the signs and wonders. They serve a greater end so that people say, oh, wow, well, we can't deny that Paul doesn't speak for the living Jesus because there's clearly the Spirit of God is empowering him in a way that is validating and affirming what he's saying. And so this, the signs and wonders are given to vindicate the apostles' authority to those hearing this new truth where this, the Messiah of Israel has come, has now opened up a way for Jew and Gentile to be reconciled in, into God and to move forward in God's mission. We're now a new Israel as a church. How are, we, how are we supposed to live? The apostles and prophets are given that role of doing that specific teaching in the particularities of different house churches in that part of the world. Number two, this is just a reflection on church history. You can read church history up and down, left and right, north and south, shallow and deep. There has never been any particular person, nor have there been a group of Christians who have continued the ministry of Jesus and his apostles as it was done in the New Testament. That's not like an opinion. That's more like fact. It's just there's no group or person who's been able to consistently live out this kind of lifestyle of miracles and healings that are sometimes done just by speaking, right? Someone like Peter Gold and silver I have none, but what I do have I give to you. Stand up in the name of Jesus Christ and walk. And someone who's paralyzed is no longer paralyzed. Instantaneously brought to full restoration, right? Their musculature is actually strengthened so that now they can stand, they can walk away. Okay? No one in Christian history since the writings of the early church has been able to, with any sense of uh, validity, been able to duplicate that lifestyle. Number three, the sign gifts have often been redefined and broadened in, modern, in some modern circles to kind of include ways of talking about things that, um, talking about gifts in a way that aren't biblical. So this argument would say, sometimes what happens is people on the other side would say, oh yeah, all the gifts are still for today. They kind of soften and broaden the definition of what the gift is in order to sort of, maybe this language is too strong, but kind of smuggle in like, oh no, it's still a gift. So, for example, some people today will say prophecies. I, I, I'm a prophet, or I consistently receive a prophetic word from God. And this, what this side would say, the side who would counter that, would be to say, well, what you're actually describing are impressions from God. And every Christian gets impressions from God. As we pray, as we're listening to a sermon, as we're going about our day, we get impressions. That's awesome. That's one of the ways the Holy Spirit prompts us leads us, maybe guides us, but we still, what we do with those is we still submit them to Scripture. We seek to say, is this the Holy Spirit, or is this just what I want to hear? We submit it to other wise counsel, right? Uh, prophecy in the New Testament does have a connotation of being much more of a direct, thus saith the Lord. This is God's will definitively for this church gathered in Nelson, and God has told me this, and now we all have to submit to that. But um, what happens is when prophecy becomes this loose sense of, well, it just means being sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and wisdom. Well, yeah, Christians should be that, but that's not the gift of prophecy. Or with the gift of healings, right? That, that has, in many circles, become softened to include, like, partial healings. My knee was hurting. Someone prayed for me. It doesn't hurt as much. Or I can kind of move it, right? Healings in the New Testament 
There's no way to read any of the New Testament accounts without understanding healing to be powerful and almost instantaneous and total, right? Again, that doesn't mean that God doesn't progressively heal through prayer. It just means that if we're going to call healing anything, the gift of healing is, is someone is gifted with the ability to pray and then people sort of generically feel a little bit better. That's a real watering down of what the Bible says the actual gift of healing is. And so this side would say, the other side has taken a very lax, very generous definition of the gifts in such a way that you actually make the gift, um, you kind of undermine the actual significance of the gift and what we see the gift doing in the New Testament church. Another one would would be speaking in tongues. I absolutely believe every time tongues is mentioned in scripture, it's in reference to an actual language so that the early church can spread to other people groups quickly and can be a display of power for those outside the church to say, wow, God is actually in this. Okay? Now, the other side, I'll get to this in a second, they're going to say tongues aren't, that's not what tongues are. That Tongues can include a loosening of conscious prayer where you can just have a prayer language and you can just kind of... Um, uh, let your tongue and make whatever utterances you want as a form of prayer. Now, again, uh, you know, let's, let's leave the discussion of whether that's right or wrong or wise or not. That's just not the gift of tongues, though. Um, I think what we can say is the best way of understanding that is maybe there are times where we want to just psychologically relax or we don't have the words to say, and, we, and there are some people who find some kind of release from just you know, what might sound like babbling in the presence of God? Do I think that's a sin? I don't think so, especially if it's done privately. But I wouldn't call that the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues in Scripture is when someone is given the ability to speak another language or to understand someone speaking in another language so that those who are hearing and speaking are built up. And I think one of the most obvious reasons why I would say this gift is Uh, no longer in operation is because almost every missionary who does cross-cultural ministry does language work for months or even years before they go in the field. Why wouldn't God just give them the language? Why is Colleen Nanachuk wasting her time in Argentina learning Spanish? Why doesn't the Holy Spirit give her the gift of tongues? Or why aren't we only sending missionaries who We know they have the gift of tongues because before they go or when they go, instantly they know the language and can can communicate. They don't need training. Charismatic, Pentecostal missionaries do language training. Lutherans, Covenanters, you, you name it. We all do language training. And some might say, well, the gift of tongues is like the ability to pick up language really quickly. Okay, that's not a biblical definition. You can choose to believe that if you want. But again, we're starting to stray from the actual biblical definition. And the fourth, I think, best argument for this view that not, the signs and wonder gifts aren't for today, aren't given for today, is remember the overall purpose of the gifts. Build up the church. Earlier in Ephesians, unity and peace. Those are major themes that Paul is stressing in Ephesians 4. The gifts are given, all gifts are given to build up the church and to unify the gifts. But, and this is coming from other people, and I did a lot of research on this, and, there's, and I think both sides would recognize there's truth in this, even though the other side would say, ooh, I don't want to believe this is true, but it's true. 
The sign gifts, the signs and wonder gifts, as they're commonly practiced, they often don't lead to unity and peace amongst the body of Christ. Often, the more you emphasize the signs and wonder gifts, the more it drives wedges into communities and it makes it harder for local churches or even denominations to work together because of this thing, well, we just have a different view of gifts. Yeah, but once you play out the ministry implications, you, it becomes harder to figure out how are we going to do this together? Like on the ground level, how, how, how can we maintain unity and peace when we have such divergent views of how the Holy Spirit works and what we ought to expect? And so some pro-gift people on this side, the pro-signs and wonder people, they would say, they would, they would admit that sometimes the communities that have most aggressively celebrated and encouraged these miraculous gifts have pushed other Christians away and um, the fruit of it hasn't been unity and peace. Let me just say it like that. Not only for communities, but for people. Every five to ten years, I always... Uh, Yeah, probably every five to ten years, I deal with a certain waves of people coming to see me pastorally who I would consider to be under the effect of something that I would call charismatic burnout. They've been in this culture where they're looking for signs and wonders, they want signs and wonders, they're striving for these gifts, and as we'll talk about later on, one of the dangers is this can become a very hyper-spiritualized culture, and instead of leading to unity and peace, it leads to fragmentation and exhaustion because you were so desperate to see God move powerfully. And yet, when it doesn't happen, or when you're trying to think, well, maybe that was powerful. You're trying to find ways, to confirmation bias, you're trying to hold it all in. It just becomes exhausting. Okay, so that's the first position. But I'm also going to share the best arguments for the other side, which is the position that all the gifts are still active. All the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still available, and the, the Holy Spirit still does give the gifts, all the gifts, even the sign gifts, even the wonders, the gifts of healing and miracles. Here's why. Number one, Jesus often talked and demonstrated through his ministry that he intended a continuity between what he did and what his apostles were going to do, but also what other Christians were going to do in his name. In Luke 9:2, speaking just to the 12 apostles, he says, he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So that is given, that command is given just to the 12. But the next chapter, Luke 10, 9, he sends out 72 disciples. These are people who were not apostles, but they were sincere followers of Jesus. And he says, heal the sick. And, um, and tell those who hear the kingdom of God has come near you. And then in John 14, 12, this is a pretty famous one. Jesus says, very truly I tell you. That's amin, amin. It's a double Amen. Jesus is amening a statement before anyone else has to, gets to do it at the end. He's saying, what I'm about to tell you is as, is as rock solid as you can get. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater than these works, because I'm going to the Father. So there's a show-and-tell element to the gospel. I talked about this in the Gospel of Mark, right? 
Jesus doesn't just tell about the inbreaking kingdom of God. His miracles show it. And it seems like from some of these passages, Jesus didn't intend the showing part of the inbreaking of the kingdom, where captives are set free and the blind can see and uh, those who are deaf, uh, their ears are opened, that that showing of the kingdom stops completely from being any kind of physical reality. It's all just kind of spiritualized. No one's healed from blindness anymore, just spiritual blindness. No one's healed from um, uh, crippling conditions of the body, just crippling conditions of the heart. There's no evidence that Jesus sees or, or, or primes his followers to say, hey, just so you know, when the Holy Spirit comes, don't expect this to continue. He says the opposite. Second argument, we see regular Christians, non-apostles, performing signs and wonders in the New Testament. Stephen in Acts 6.8, a man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people. He's not an apostle. There's no message to, in a sense, confirm. But God is doing signs and wonders through him. Acts 8.6, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all played, paid close attention to what he said. Philip, not an apostle. But he's given a gift to be able to consistently do signs that speak to supernatural empowerment. Number three, in 1 Corinthians 12, remember the first few says uh, this, the, the gifts of, of you know, um, healing and miracles and, and tongues, they were there to validate the apostles' message. So they're kind of tied with the gift of apostleship. But in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul is talking about the gifts of miracle and healing, he separates those from the gift of being an apostle. He asks the church, um, is, is everybody an apostle? To which the answer is no. The Holy Spirit hasn't gifted everybody with the gift of apostle, right? Is everybody a prophet? No, only some people are. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? Okay, so apostles and miracles don't have to go together. Do all have the gifts of healing? Okay, so he's making a distinction. And this view says the reason why he makes a, distinct, a distinction is while signs and miracles and wonders were done to validate the apostles' message, that's not the only reason why they were done. They were part of the showing and telling of the kingdom that continued through sometimes regular Christians gifted by the Spirit of God. Number four, nowhere in the New Testament is it ever suggested that certain spiritual gifts were only given to a particular place or time and then they were supposed to cease. That's something that the other side, that first side, that says only some of the gifts, not the sign gifts anymore, that side reads back into the text basically because of Christian history. They say, well, nothing like that has ever existed in an era outside of the First Testament church, or the, outside of the early church, so it's, it must have just been localized there. And then they tie it to the apostles and say when they died, that was some kind of spiritual line where some gifts continue, but all of them don't. The sign gifts stop. But nowhere, you can't find a scripture that makes it very clear that this is God's plan to start uh, suppressing or even putting away or ceasing some of the gifts. And lastly, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he writes to them, this is the whole church, and he says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. He's telling every Christian to go after the gift of prophecy. He's not saying only certain people or only the apostles. He's saying we should pursue, we should desire the gifts, so all of them, and especially prophecy. It gives us supernatural insight into at least what God is saying to and for this church mediated by his word.
And so therefore, prophecy and healings and speaking in tongues and doing miracles and doing signs and wonders is clearly not just for a few small number of apostles. And so those would be the view that this side would say, therefore, we should move forward expecting God to at times still gift people with these gifts of the Spirit. Maybe not in the exact number that, you know, it's not like for every one person that gets the gift of helps, there's one person that gets the gift of healings. Maybe it doesn't work like that. But we shouldn't assume these gifts are no longer active and they're completely dormant because we don't really have strong biblical evidence for that. That's what that side would say. So here's where I stand. I would be the first view. I would be the cessationist view, but I hate that term again. Uh, And I actually like where the Covenant Church lands on this. The Covenant Church really tries to say this is what Scripture says and tries not to say more than Scripture says and tries not to say less. And and they're what becomes a covenant affirmation, that they say what all Christians are clearly called to um, walk in as new believers in Christ is conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called to walk in. And some call it cowardice because the covenant church doesn't take a stand on which view. You can actually hold either view within the covenant as long as your view comes out of a rigorous study of both sides and you say, this is where I lean. And I can be respectful and charitable and live in good faith with other Christians who believe the other side. I'm not vilifying them, um, dismissing their faith, making fun of them. I'm saying they don't arrive at the same conclusions that I do with the text. They may have a different ministry expression, but I still believe they're my brother and sister in Christ and I'm going to fight for unity, even though we're going to maybe go on different paths. Conscious dependence of the Holy Spirit. So I don't believe, personally, that particular Christians are given sign gifts anymore. I still believe, let me put it this way, I believe that God still works miracles, but there are no longer miracle workers who can consistently execute miracles. I believe that God absolutely supplies healing, sometimes supernaturally and powerfully, through people or just through prayer between a person and God. But I do not believe God gifts people with the spiritual gift of miraculous powers to be able to execute those consistently. I believe that God gives insight and wisdom into the text and into the implications for how we ought to live as a church. But I don't believe there are any modern-day prophets in the way that that language, like a capital P prophet. And I believe God empowers us to do cross-cultural ministry, but I don't believe in the gift of tongues in the sense of people who are given with any kind of uh, uh, reliable, verifiable uh, mechanism the ability to just know certain languages or to be able to speak it without training and development. That's where I stand. But again, the covenant tries to be gracious and to say, we don't want to say anything about the gifts that the Bible doesn't say. And so they kind of leave it open as a tension from humility, not as cowardice, but as humility to say, we recognize there are good sides of the argument by Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, theologically rigorous people. We've heard the best arguments on both sides and we don't want to say, well, in order to be part of the covenant church, you have to lean in this direction. But in whatever direction you lean, you should look with love and seek to understand the other side, even if ultimately you might not disagree with them or not even be able to participate with them in certain ministry endeavors because it's just a bridge too far for you. Here are the dangers within each view, and I just want to say this really briefly. 
because uh, I've seen this. I've seen this temptation in my own heart in, my, in the first few, and I've seen it for churches, heard lots of stories, probably won't surprise you. Here are the dangers with the first view, the view that only some of the gifts, not the signs and wonder gifts, not the uh, powerful, explosive uh, Holy Spirit empowerment into, into miraculous and into the healing. The danger is that this can lead to, if you're not careful, church cultures of dutiful, lifeless observance. Because what happens is the Holy Spirit gets conflated with emotion or excitement or energy, and then anything that a church does where people are getting too excited, too emotional, too energized, ooh, shut that down. Shut it down, right? Isn't the fruit of the Spirit self-control? And wouldn't that mean we're always in control of our emotions? And that we'd process life emotionally kind of like this? Highs aren't too highs, lows aren't too low. Isn't that what a genuine, dynamic Christian life looks like? I hope not. But I've fallen into that temptation myself, right? I know these truths. I have all these ideas about God. But because I'm, I so don't want to be, maybe the character I had in my mind is wild, out-of-control, emotional, charismatics, or Pentecostals, I swing to the other end, and instead of saying emotions are a good gift from God, the Holy Spirit does bring deep joy, and not just like, yeah, I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Yay, down in my heart, right? I don't just testifying to it. I actually experience it. I cry in church. I laugh in church. I experience the full gamut of human emotion because Jesus, by his Spirit, is making me fully alive as a human being. I'm not scared of my emotion. But this can happen. Churches can get so scared of anything supernatural and therefore anything emotional and therefore anything energized. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I was keeping the lid on it. They're fearful. You can become fearful of strong emotions because you're conflating that with being out of control. Now, um, and, and these churches can slip into moralism, emotionally closed, joyless. And they can also be churches that never actively seek or ask for the power of the Spirit. Never even thinking to ask at the start of their day, Holy Spirit, empower me for what you have called me to do today. I need your power, God. I need to be consciously dependent on you to faithfully live out the call of uh, Jesus on my life today. Help me, Holy Spirit. The danger of the churches and Christians who say all the gifts are active, especially the signs and wonder gifts, is that these can lead to church cultures of what I would call hyper-spirituality, where evidence that the Spirit is moving is connected to hyperactivity, hyper-emotion, hyper-energy, in some cases, hyper-volume of stuff. Um, and the more, and in some cases, in the worst cases, the more out of control you are, that's evidence that the Holy Spirit's really taken over. Because the Holy Spirit has bypassed your ability to put on a face at church. And so if I'm rolling in the aisles and weeping and crying and yelling out and, and releasing my tongue and, and babbling publicly, that's actually evidence that the Holy Spirit has taken over because it's a heightened hyper-experience. It's not normal. And so what can happen here is you can create a culture where that very quickly gets conflated with emotionalism and hyperactivity and the culture, consciously or not, rewards people who continue to act in wilder and wilder and makes more grandiose and broad and wild claims. Those people get elevated to places of prominence in the community 
or leadership and being feeling things and having deep, sincere experiences for whatever reason, however they come, but the deeper and the more wrecking the experience, that's actually evidence that the Holy Spirit is working. And so you can create a culture where strong emotions, strong experiences are kind of the clues that you look for for whether or not the Spirit is actually alive and working in the church. And I think that's a very dangerous, very immature, very unbiblical culture. Because it can be very easily exploited by people who come along and say, uh, I'm a, I'm a modern-day apostle, I'm a modern-day prophet, I have these direct messages, and I'm creating a hyper, an environment of hyper-stimulation where you're absolutely going to feel something. You know, for anybody who went to Chick this year, you get in a room with 5,000 people praising God, you're not going to not feel anything. And feeling something isn't bad, but it might not be. You don't just baptize your feelings all the time and say, wow, I feel this really strongly. It must be God doing something. Well, it might be, but it could also not be. It could just be you getting caught up in the moment. And I guess that's not even necessarily sinful, but to say, oh, that was God at work, or I got caught up in the moment and lost control, and that was the Holy Spirit, that might be the bridge too far. Because now you might be baptizing behaviors or attitudes that, um, that's, a, that's a different way, I would say, of taking the name of the Lord your God in vain, which means carrying the name of the Lord. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You don't carry God's name in a way that cheapens it. And that can be a temptation with these uh, cultures and even charismatic leaders, even some of the ones that I would say are really trying to ground themselves biblically would say, within these streams of Christianity, it's really easy for charismatic leaders, not charismatic in the spirit sense, but charismatic is big, demonstrative, get people riled up. It's really easy for people to move into those communities and just leverage their personality to do all kinds of stuff in the church and exploit people. And that's obviously really, really bad. And this church is going to have a lot of experientialism and and worship experience and and lack some strong biblical theology because do you really want to go through all the work of studying the Bible when God could just give you a personal word of knowledge right now? Like, what's better? The right answer is, well, the foundational truth. But, like, what's kind of like, like, in terms of Christian living, what's the more attractive thing? I want the shortcut. I want the, I want the precise. I don't want to do all the work and do a Bible study. I, I kind of find the Bible is boring. You know what's not boring? Dreams and visions, right? So again, th- there can be this pursuit of these things, sometimes well-intended, but it can also just be an excuse to look after spiritual sh- shortcuts. So sometimes this view would be leaning too much in the uh, level of emotions and uh, immaturity in that way, and the other view is leaning much too heavily on, um, on hesitation and carefulness and, and wanting to distance off, often themselves from those expressions of faith, but that can lead to a very closed, intellectualized faith that doesn't have embodied sense of God's presence and power in everyday life. Okay, I'm going to skip my next question, Dan. I'm, I'm going to pick it up next week about fivefold ministry and just go right to the end. <clears throat> so I think all Christians are called to pursue a spirit-filled life. Paul talks about that a lot in the New Testament, be filled with the Spirit. Jesus is is referenced a lot in the Gospels. Jesus, filled with the Spirit, went out and, in a sense, showed and told about the kingdom. 
But I, I believe a spirit-filled Christian life is one that is increasingly conformed to this vision. That if we are truly walking in step with the Spirit, full of His power, learning to walk under His leadership, we are learning to passionately and sincerely love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, every dimension. And we're learning to creatively, with the Spirit's help, dependent on the Holy Spirit, learning to love our neighbor as ourselves. And part of that is learning what our gifts are and then using them to serve our neighbor. Not serve our own agenda, but to serve God and his agenda. And so let's pursue that vision, but let's pursue it eagerly and humbly. And let's desire to identify and use the gifts that God has given to us by the Holy Spirit so that we can continue to find life and to take hold of the life that is truly life. And we can help people who don't know Jesus come to know saving faith in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you gift us. And Holy Spirit, this is hard because you have Christians on one side that are like, I pray to the Holy Spirit, I pray for guidance, and this is what the Holy Spirit opens up to me, and this is where I land. And then we have Christian brothers and sisters who are deeply sincere and love you and are fully into the, uh, want to see the best in terms of the gospel and people come to faith, and they're praying to you, and they're saying, I think this is what the Holy Spirit is opening up to me. So we want to walk humbly, God, but... Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Um, show us how to walk in a way that is very clearly prescribed by your word. Because we, we recognize that the word that we have in Scripture is an expression that came through people carried along by you, the Holy Spirit. And so we submit ultimately to its authority. Give us wisdom in these things, God. Give us grace in these things. But teach us as Christians to consciously depend on you for the power that we need to live in the way that you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen.